Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the award-winning journalist, author and editor Anna Fifield. Anna began her career as a journalist in New Zealand before moving to London to join the Financial Times, and she reported for the FT from Seoul and Washington and other postings. She then switched to the Washington Post, and she served first as the Tokyo Bureau Chief and then as the Beijing Bureau Chief. In this capacity, she wrote extensively on subjects including elite politics in China, the Uyghurs, and the US-China relationship. In 2019, Anna published her excellent biography of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, entitled The Great Successor. Actually, in the United States, that book had the wonderful subtitle, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Anna returned to New Zealand last year to take up the editorship of the Dominion Post and Stuff's Wellington Newsroom. Thank you, Anna Fifield, for joining me on the Director's Chair. Well, kia ora, Michael, and thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. All right. First up, Anna, tell us a bit about your upbringing in New Zealand and what drew you to journalism. Mm, yeah, I grew up in a very normal household in Hastings, provincial New Zealand. My mum worked for a dentist and my dad for a, a – he was a policeman my mm. whole childhood. But I think, you know, partly because I was from New Zealand contributed to me wanting to kind of get out and see the world. I was always very bookish and curious mm. as a child and loved learning languages and, and I just wanted to get out and explore. So I remember being a teenager and watching the television foreign correspondents roving around mm. the Balkans and just thinking that looked like the best job in the world to be out, uh, you know, in these exciting places with a license to ask lots of nosy questions and to get to write about it or report on it. So it was uh, the only thing I ever really wanted to do. And you ended up working for two of the world's great mastheads, the Financial Times and the Washington Post. What did you learn at those organizations? Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate that after starting at a newspaper and then the Press Association in New Zealand, I went off to London and got into the FT. That was at the end of the year 2000. So the internet bubble had just kind of burst. It, well, mm -hmm. it wasn't the great, was bursting. It wasn't the great crazy heyday of it, but it was really kind of the nascent era of digital journalism that we're in today. And so I remember being at the FT in 2001 and calling foreign correspondents and asking them to write a story for the website. And they would say like, oh, I don't write for website, <laughs> FT.com like that. You know, and now, of course, we're all digital first. That's the way to be. So a lot has changed there. But I think, you know, at, I spent 13 years at the FT, six years at the Washington Post. I think it really drilled into me the need to, I mean, obviously accuracy and fairness and all of these things we talk about, but the need to slow down a bit uh, and to take my time to write properly reported deep, thorough stories. And it's much better to write one really good story than to write three mediocre stories. So that's the thing that I've been trying to do from the field all these years to mm -hmm. try to pick my moment and write, write big stories that will tell an audience about a place in context, about a place that they probably won't ever visit themselves. 
You talk about reporting from the field, and of course, you've reported from Seoul and from London and from Washington. But I want to come to the part of the career where you came back to Asia. You spent a, a number of years in Tokyo. And I think when you were reporting from Japan, Mr. Suga was the cabinet secretary, if I'm not wrong. Yes. Were you surprised that he succeeded Shinzo Abe as prime minister? Yes, I really was, actually. I mean, I met him when he was the chief cabinet secretary and in that role. But in my years in Tokyo, when people were thinking about who would succeed Abe, you know, there were a bunch of names around, but Suga wasn't really spoken about that much uh, as a potential leader. So I, w- I was surprised when he took over. But then at the same time, I think the hallmark of my time in Tokyo, those four years that mm. I was there, was that nothing really changed uh, politically. You mm. know, Abe would call elections and maybe they'd change a cabinet minister or two, but it's very stable there now uh, compared to how it was in the preceding years when they ran through so many prime ministers all, all together. So I guess they're in a period of stability at the moment and Suga is very much continuing what Abe did during his tenure. In 2018, you moved to a country where they don't have to worry about the results of elections too much to to China. What was your experience like as as a Western journalist in China? How did you find living and working in China? Yeah, well, I mean, I arrived in China having covered North Korea on and off for eight years, mm-hmm. uh, starting from 2004, being in the throes of writing this book about Kim Jong-un and having reported a lot on North Korea in the preceding four years. So I arrived really conscious that China was not North Korea, and I had to resist my natural bias to look at China through a North Korean lens. There are a lot of differences. You know, China is even now much freer and more entrepreneurial and energetic than North Korea is. But boy, it was really hard at some stages during my my time in Beijing because Xi Jinping has really presided over this increasingly authoritarian system in China, where in many ways it did remind me of North Korea in that it's become really difficult as a reporter to go and talk to ordinary people. People are afraid to talk to foreign journalists especially Mm. journalists for American organizations. That's ordinary people on the street Mm. as well as professors or company people or any of the kind of people you see in the course of your work as a foreign correspondent. And also just in terms of being out and about and traveling around and bearing witness to what is happening in a country, that became increasingly difficult even during those two years that I was there. And so when I would travel out in the country, you know, if I was going to a sensitive area like the Tibetan part of Mm -hmm. uh, Sichuan or to Xinjiang or somewhere that's very sensitive, of course, I always expected to be detained by the police or to be accosted by the security services in some ways. But increasingly, that's happening to people even in Beijing now. It happened to me last year reporting on the pandemic for a very anodyne story. So I think that the government in China has decided that it doesn't need foreign correspondents Mm -hmm. anymore. You know, it did need them during the 2000s and when they were trying to attract foreign investment and joining the WTO and all these kinds of things. But now they have, you know, their TV networks, they have their wolf warriors at the podium. They have their ways of getting their message out. 
So they see foreign correspondents as nothing but pesky. You know, all we do is go yeah. out and tell a different narrative to the state propaganda. So I think that's why you've seen so many American journalists mm. kicked out, why we've seen, you know, all of the Australian journalists mm. working for Australian publications mm. um, had to leave as well. So it's a really concerning development, I think, because – you know, yes, of course we're independent when we're there, but the whole point of having a foreign correspondent as a country is to have somebody on the ground, mm. you know, dust on boots, going and talking to people and showing what life is like in that country mm. and really bringing a lot of texture to the reporting and to reflecting how that country lives. So now what we see, I think, is a lot of great reporting being done from outside of China. But of course, it's all the South China Sea, Uyghur, diplomatic tensions, Taiwan kind of stuff, and very little of the, of the daily life of China. One of the stories you mentioned that is being covered a lot in the international press, of course, is the fate of the Uyghurs. And we're seeing a number of Western countries, even in recent weeks, sanctioning Chinese officials over human rights abuses in Xinjiang. How effective do you think international pressure will be on this issue? Yeah, it hasn't had much impact yet, I think. I think that the Chinese Communist Party expects liberal democracies in the West to condemn uh, these kind of human rights abuses in this way. Uh, they've already factored that in. And we've seen the Chinese government put a lot of effort into winning hearts and minds in Muslim countries uh, and to neutralizing the criticism that would come mm -hmm. from countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, mm. mostly by using their you know, checkbooks. Mm economic incentives, coercion to buy the silence of these countries. So I think that so far the pressure hasn't made China stop what it's doing in any way, but it has made them kind of be more accountable, front up more. You know, they do admit the existence of these camps now, even though they call them vocational training and even though they say it was necessary for terrorism. But, you know, I think it's incumbent on us and the outside world to raise our voices about this as much as possible mm. and to you know, show China that we won't do nothing about it, that we will, you know, condemn it if that, even if that's all we can do. And, and so in that respect, I think, uh, you know, all these other countries, including the countries this week that have sanctioned Chinese officials over it, have been taking at least a stand on that. And Australia and New Zealand, for their own reasons, haven't joined in. I want to come back to Australia and New Zealand, but at the weekend, we saw this very interesting contretemps in Anchorage in Alaska between the Chinese state councillor and foreign minister and their American counterparts, a real display of wolf warrior diplomacy, I think, from the Chinese side. What did you make of it? Yeah, I think it's really what we can expect uh, from the Biden administration. You know, this is really a bipartisan issue in the United States now, and it's not as if things are suddenly going to become all, uh, you know, rosy and cozy again now that, that the Democrats are back in power in the US. So I think, yeah, there is a great deal of mistrust and uncertainty and skepticism about China's motives and goals here, and that that is not going to, like the tone and uh, maybe the, some of the tools may change from the Trump era, but the direction of it will remain the same uh, from the Chinese side and also from the American side. One of the issues that the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, raised at Anchorage was China's attempted economic coercion of Australia. 
over the last six or 12 months? What have you made of that strategy? Yeah, well, I mean, this is pretty par for the course for China now. It has no compunction about using its economic leverage to try to exact revenge or to coerce countries into to buckling. So obviously, we saw it with the US during the trade war. We've seen it, you know, really devastating stuff to see the two Michaels mm. uh, in China. These two Canadians have been now tried for very serious crimes, uh, been held for two and a half years almost, you know, the Chinese have been fully prepared to do this, to take these two men in retribution for Meng Wanzhou's uh, detention at home in her luxurious house in Vancouver Mm. there. And so, I mean, the same thing has happened a bit with the UK, now Australia. They are really making it clear that anybody who dares criticize them and who dares question them will suffer the consequences from that. And so looking at the response what has happened to Australia, I mean, particularly to watch that from New Zealand, mm-hmm. I think there's a great deal of fear here that we don't want to be the next Australia and that people are really conscious of the impact that it could have on our trading relationship with China. The New Zealand government would say that they are trying to have a more mature, independent foreign policy, and that they will stand up for things in their own way at their own time. But I do think there is this real concern here about what would happen if China were to retaliate against us. And far from distancing ourselves from China, the New Zealand government has been trying to promote greater ties, like they've just revised the FTA between New Zealand and Mm. China. So it's quite a different approach to what the other Five Eyes countries are taking, uh, which is obviously, uh, you know, the New Zealand government thinks it's in their economic interests. But also, I think China thinks it's really helpful to have a small but friendly country in that um, Five Eyes alliance and to not be seen to be entirely anti-Western. It's sometimes difficult to nail down New Zealand's approach on China because on the one hand, uh, as you mentioned, we've put out joint statements on Xinjiang and Hong Kong. But on the other hand, we had the New Zealand Trade Minister, for example, providing Australia with some helpful feedback a few weeks ago about how we should do it. How do you feel personally about New Zealand's approach to China as someone who lived in China for a number of years and has a very clear-eyed view of what the regime is like? Do you feel comfortable with New Zealand's policy settings at the moment? I mean, I think New Zealand has wised up a little or matured a little since the John Key era. I mean, China has also changed a lot since the John Key era, and we've really seen what kind of leader Xi Jinping wants to be uh, since 2018 or so. The thing that really has surprised me so much since coming home is how little traction any of this reporting about China gets in New Zealand. Mm. So in the past few weeks, I've been involved with a big project here at Stuff about New Zealand links to tech companies that are supporting the repression in Xinjiang or helping it in some way. And Mm. there's a New Zealand government-backed fund that is invested in a company that's invested in a Chinese tech company. You know, the shareholders holding is small and the link is remote, Mm. but, you know, it's still helping the Chinese government repress tens of millions Uyghurs in China. And so we had some really good reporting on that and showing these links and released a great fanfare here. And it just results in no political response uh, whatsoever. And, And by the same token, we've had reporting about how the New Zealand visa office in Beijing is staffed by a subcontractor 
contractor with links to the Beijing Public Security Bureau. Mm. Australia doesn't use that same subcontractor, but Canada does. And when the Canadian reports came out, there were calls for an inquiry in Canada, you know, not even a blip here in New Zealand. So it's really puzzling to me coming back as to why New Zealand is not taking the threat of China so seriously enough. And, you know, I think we are too naive on this. And I, I don't know what it takes to make New Zealand stand up more for our values and or balance that against our economic interests. When you were reporting from Beijing, what were your impressions of Xi Jinping? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I found it in some ways easier to report on Kim Jong-un mm. than I did to report on Xi Jinping because, mm. you know, at least you could find people on the outside and things who'd met Kim Jong-un and would talk about him, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm kind of joking, but also kind of not, and that it was just impossible to get any information about Xi Jinping in, in modern China and, you know, remarkable for someone who's been a politician his whole life and is from this political family that no one in any of these provinces where he was the governor, you know, would talk about his time there, you know, it really was the third rail. But from what I had been able to observe in the way he was running the party in Beijing, you know, he's very, very much in control. He's a very personalistic, one-man band kind of leader. And so, you know, I watched over those years about how anybody who dared to criticize him, whether they're a business tycoon or a political, you know, bigwig, a lot of these people were put into jail for either, you know, usually corruption uh, as a smoke shield or for some kind of, you know, other trumped up uh, crime. So he's, you know, this is what I mean about how I have to stop myself from looking at China as if it's North Korea, because in many ways, it's the same tactic, right? Mm. It's using the state and using fear as a deterrent against standing up against a leader and criticizing him in any way. Anna, as I mentioned, you're the author of The Great Successor, a biography of Kim Jong-un. Why did you decide to write this book? I had been reporting on North Korea between 2004 and 2008 for the Financial Times, and I just couldn't imagine during that time that the North Korean regime would be able to make that next transition, a second transition to a third leader called Kim. So I felt pretty sure that the regime was going to end with Kim Jong-il. So imagine my surprise when I returned uh, for the Washington Post in 2014 and went back to Pyongyang and saw, you know, the Potemkin village had had a facelift. You know, the buildings were had been repainted. They were still terrible with no electricity on the inside, but the city looked better. And Kim Jong-un appeared not only to be surviving, but kind of almost thriving there. So I wanted to report out uh, how he had managed to do this, how mm. he had defied all of the odds and managed to become the leader of North Korea and stay the leader of North Korea. And I mean, it's still a puzzle to this day. You know, it's, it's almost 10 years. He's in his 10th year of, uh, of leading North Korea now. And he has done it by being very savvy and very shrewd and calculating and ruthless and much more, you know, rational than the comic, you know, cartoonish kind of um, the caricature of him that as we so often see in popular culture would give him credit for. So the way he has stayed in power is partly by 
yeah, using fear uh, as a deterrent by having his uncle and his brother and his army chief and the propaganda chief and all these other people at the top of the regime Mm -hmm. who could rival him for power. He's had all of them either purged, expelled or executed Mm -hmm. in various degrees of, um, with various degrees of brutality. Artillery shells and so on. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also, you know, been very repressive on the population as a whole and, you know, has not eased up at all politically in the ways that many people thought that he might when he came in since he is so young, since he has been schooled abroad. So he's really been kind of very cunning in the way he's approached the job and and tried to use that fear factor. But also, you know, he has allowed a degree of economic opening. I mean, nothing like what China's been through, but there is more freedom economically in North Korea now so that people can earn their own money through private trade. Uh, the fat cats in Pyongyang have, you know, become rich uh, through corruption. Um, so people do ironically have more freedom from the state than they had before. And that Kim Jong-un, of course, takes all the credit for this. This is why he's allowing it. So he can say, you know, under my great leadership, your lives have gotten better. Mm. Um, And he has this whole class of kleptocrats in Pyongyang now who owe their wealth to him. And so who will be loyal to him, he hopes. We know about his governing style. What do we know about Kim Jong-un's personality? How, How weird a person is he, do you think? Oh, well... I can be an armchair psychologist, I guess, and look from afar. You know, funnily enough, he declined through uh, my request for an interview <laughs> that I asked the diplomats in New York on several occasions, and they said, dream on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he is very different from his father. I think he genuinely is this quite gregarious, outgoing person like mm-hmm. his grandfather was. Like We see him in all of these public settings, whether it's with Donald Trump or mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin or you know the military units he goes and visits around mm-hmm. the place. And maybe he's putting it on or maybe he's hamming it up, but he does seem to be able to turn on the charm and be self-deprecating, you know, joke about his weight when mm-hmm. he's with people. Uh, from abroad. So he, you know, he's savvy enough to be able to know what he needs to do to get Donald Trump on board, which Mm. is exactly what he did, you Mm. know, to joke about being Mm. in a science fiction movie and this kind of stuff. So, Mm. you know, he's, I mean, I have to be very careful when I talk about him in this way because I don't want to suggest for a second that he's a nice guy. He mm. is He is not. He is a very brutal dictator. But in terms of him trying to stay in power, he plays the part mm. very well. It's like he's read the dictator's handbook on mm. how to, you know, how how to keep a totalitarian regime uh, together and how to kind of neutralize political enemies. Mm. I'm always intrigued by the sort of extreme security, personal security that surrounds Kim Jong-un. We had the famous running bodyguards a few years ago, and then there were those reports that the North Koreans took a special toilet to the Singapore summit so that the CIA would, wouldn't be able to examine any waste to draw conclusions about Kim's diet or drug usage or whatever. I mean, to what extent does this whole country revolve around the human impulses and needs of one individual man? Yeah, in North Korea, I mean, the regime, the state revolves entirely around him and him alone. You know, ordinary people, when they're living their lives out in North Korea, you know, are too busy worrying about 
feeding their families and and trying to get through in the extremely difficult environment that they live in. You know, they know not to say anything about politics, but usually they're too busy just with day-to-day life to think about that anyway. But in terms of the whole system, it's all geared around keeping Kim Jong-un in power. You know, he has tens of thousands of military guards, uh, you know, to to protect him. There's an entire unit called Bureau 39, which is dedicated to raising money for him. So it's that unit, you know, people go abroad and Mm -hmm. do lots of illegal trade as well as legal trade to raise the money to buy the Mercedes Maybach and Mm -hmm. the Rolls Royce and these things that we've seen Kim Jong-un show up to the summits in. Mm -hmm. So it all revolves around him and keeping him in power. Mm -hmm. You mentioned his meetings with President Trump, uh, which were part of Mr. Trump's ultimately unsuccessful effort to bring peace to the Korean Peninsula. In retrospect, what do you make of that effort? Do you think it was ridiculously naive or do you give him points for trying? I think both is my answer. You know, I think it was ridiculously naive and Trump had no idea what he was doing. But I also think it was worth a go Mm -hmm. because, you know, decades of the same old carrot and stick, you know, six party talks, you know, sanctions and things had resulted in no progress whatsoever. In fact, North Korea had been able to make, you know, many more nuclear weapons and advance its missile technology during that period. So I thought the old way hadn't worked Mm -hmm. and that it was time to try something different, at least give it a go. Uh, And, you know, Kim Jong-un is very different from his father and well, Donald Trump was very different from previous presidents as mm. well. So I thought maybe these two unorthodox characters could be able to forge some kind of path where mm. they could make progress. You know, not for a second did I think that Kim Jong-un would give up his nuclear weapons. No mm. way. I mean, mm. he needs those for his security and for his legitimacy inside North Korea. But I thought, you know, even if they could start having, you know, more uh, interaction between North Korea and the outside world, you know, ping pong diplomacy, just helping North Koreans see the outside world or experience a little more of the outside world might be able to bring about some change in North Korea. Mm. And of course, Kim Jong-un wants to limit that and make sure that there aren't enough people going out or seeing the lie of the propaganda. But anything that I thought we could do to help crack open North Korea. Korea, even a tiny bit would have been worthwhile. And this week I see that North Korea fired some short-range missiles off the West Coast after criticising the US and South Korea for proceeding with military exercises. So I guess we're back to what you called the old ways a second ago. Yeah, I guess we are. I mean, this is just attention grabbing from Mm. North Korea. You know, I don't think it really amounts to very much. You know, if they really want to grab attention, they they fire the big ones, Mm -hmm. the ones that can go much, much further. So I think this is probably a sign of frustration, um, you know, an effort to get some eyeballs back on them. Uh, Yeah, look at me, exactly. Um, But, you know, I think we don't know what's going on inside North Korea at the moment. They closed their borders to China, you know, before Wuhan even went into lockdown in January last year. Mm -hmm. So they have been entirely closed off from China and the outside world for well over a year now. And I've just got to think that that must have had a much more devastating impact on their economy and on Kim Jong-un's ability to finance his lifestyle, you know, than any sanctions regimes had previously. Mm. So I think that Kim Jong-un is probably under quite a bit of stress uh, right now. So he can fire off a few short-range missiles and vent his frustrations um, without, you know, pushing the envelope too far. 
You mentioned at the beginning, Anna, the only job you ever wanted to do was to be one of these globe-trotting foreign correspondents in the Balkans with dust on her boots and so on. You've done that and you've now decided to come back to New Zealand. You're in Wellington, which, by the way, is my favourite New Zealand city. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to go back to New Zealand and how have you found returning home? Yeah. Um, I mean, even in May last year, I was not thinking at all about coming home, but it was really just the kind of confluence of factors and that China had just become really impossible as a journalist to work in. And, you know, so many journalists had been expelled or forced to leave and the ones who remained, you know, it was really hard to do any good journalism. Well, it was hard for me to do good journalism anyway. There are really good journalists who have remained. And I'd always thought I'd go back to the US, but, you know, the US wasn't looking so attractive Mm -hmm. uh, last year or, you know, the, the political changes there. It's not just about Trump, of course. It's about the polarization of mm. American society unleashed by Trump and the way the Supreme Court is, has gone and things like that. So that combined with the pandemic and with being offered, you know, a, a dream job mm-hmm. at home, which is to edit the Capital City newspaper. So all of these things together just made me think, yeah, I've had 20 great years of, you know, running around the world and I've reported from Iran and Syria and uh, North Korea and all these places. And now it was time to, to come home. And, you know, it's, it's strange in that the whole beauty of being a foreign correspondent is being far away, right? And mm-hmm. being the eyes and ears of people who may never go to that place. And I guess with the COVID year and all of the upheaval and soul searching, it suddenly made me think that I wanted to be home, to mm. be close to my audience, to have mm. that proximity, to be accountable. So that feeling, and then combined with the fact that Sinead Boucher, who was the chief executive of this company, mm. bought stuff where I now work for $1 off Fairfax, mm-hmm. you know, and that's now a New Zealand-owned company, not an Australian one. That also made me want to come home because I think, yeah, New, New Zealanders have a real interest, of course, in our media uh, continuing to survive. So I'm trying to do my bit. But yeah, it's a big difference from working at uh, the Washington Post with Jeff Bezos's, you know, money, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but it's nice to be home. And what are your observations of New Zealand? How much has it changed in the in the time you've been away? Yeah, I mean, it has changed a lot in some ways, and not at all in others. I mean, the biggest thing that I have noticed is how bicultural New Zealand has become, like mm. genuinely bicultural. I think there's a lot of progress there. And so we, like Māori is used interchangeably mm-hmm. in a lot of ordinary public life, which is a really big and, and lovely change that has happened in these 20 years since I've been away. And so there's obviously quite a long way to go in terms of, you know, New Zealand's bicultural identity and the way Māori are overrepresented in prisons and crime stats and those kinds of things, some structural issues that need to be dealt with, but it feels like we're making progress. And that really feels like a generational thing as Mm. well. The other thing that I've noticed is how economic inequality has become so obvious inside New Zealand, like the Mm -hmm. poverty, the homelessness, the haves and the have-nots. You know, we're seeing it in the housing market now has become a lot more stark than it was when I left 20 years ago in a way that I think is really sad and makes me think, you know, how did we get to this stage? How Mm. did we end up with these long lines of food banks last year, which, you know, is is nothing compared to 
the inequality in the United States or in other mm-hmm. places, but it's still really shocking to me as a New Zealander to come home to see this. But yeah, I mean, the creativity of New Zealand and, the, you know, I'm in Wellington the, with all the arts and a lot of vibrance here. So, I mean, it's really nice to be home and that stuff hasn't changed. It's gotten better. You've also come home to a country that's being governed by one of the the superstars of Western politics, Jacinda Ardern. I guess you see a lot of the PM being based in Wellington in your role. What's your impression of the Prime Minister? I think she's a lot more popular overseas than she is in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she has, she is, you know, one of the very few kind of progressive leaders in the world these days. And obviously her response to tragedies, whether it's, you know, the Christchurch mosque shooting or the White Island eruption, you know, she's been extremely good at communicating and empathizing with people in those situations. But, you know, I think it's for many New Zealanders who have supported her, she's a real disappointment because she has this progressive image. She has a huge mandate in Mm -hmm. parliament and she's just not using it. She's a very conservative in the way she governs uh, and that she is not a transformational leader in New Zealand whatsoever. You know, some of her lieutenants talk about radical incrementalism, you know, whatever that means. Um, And I think we've seen that most recently and that there was a referendum to legalize marijuana in New Zealand. Mm. And it was really hanging on a knife edge. The vote was very, very close. And Jacinda Ardern did not say in advance what way she was going to vote. And then afterwards, she said she voted in favor of legalization, which really enraged a lot of people on the left that she didn't use her power and her mandate to sway this vote, Mm. which would have been really good for so many, especially Maori people, Pacifica people who have been unfairly hurt by the criminal justice system and, you know, much more likely to be prosecuted for these things. So Mm. there's a sense with her that she has an ability to make a really fundamental change in New Zealand and that she is not living up to that promise. Mm. And just finally, Anna, how does Australia look from your side of the ditch? I mean, every year when the Lowy Institute does its poll, New Zealanders always top the poll in terms of the the country that Australians have the most affection for. Uh, But we also know that Australians and Australia and New Zealand are very different countries. And a lot of people have said that in recent years, they've moved apart and they've become uh, more different rather than more similar. How do you see Australia? How do you think Kiwis see Australia at the moment? Yeah, well, Kiwis see Australia and Australians, you know, of course, very affectionately. People here are like really hankering for that trans-Tasman bubble Mm -hmm. to reopen so people can suddenly, yeah, go back to Cairns or Brisbane or whatever and go on holiday. So, I mean, that all stays the same. But in terms of political relations, it feels pretty bad. They feel very far apart between the Scott Morrison government and the Adern government, Mm. and it seems to be uh, affecting the relationship in all sorts of ways. So obviously we've had the very public frustrations about the 501 deportees from uh, Australia, from this woman who has been deported from Turkey, Sahara Aden, when um, you know the Australian government took away her citizenship there. Uh, so there are, are those frustrations. I think also when you look at how New Zealand is reacting to China and how New Zealand is being so careful and cagey. I think that I can sense, you know, that there is uh, quite a lot of mistrust or distrust uh, amongst 
our allies, Australia and the US in particular, about whether New Zealand can be trusted on China or was coming to the party on China. So I think there are a lot of stresses in the relationship. But having said that, you know, Australia is our single most important relationship, you know, for people, for economically, across the board. So there is a limit. Anna, your career has taken you from Hastings to London to Seoul, Tokyo, Beijing, all these other great cities, and now Wellington. We certainly hope that Sydney makes that list when the trans-Tasman bubble opens. In the meantime, thank you, Anna Fifield, for speaking with me today on The Director's Chair. Oh, thank you for having me on, Michael. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.